Hello, it's Daryl Smith, and welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. Every summer in Kansas City, 25 men have one simple mission, to win. Starting pitchers, corner power hitters, middle relievers, speedy gloves up the middle, closers, utility infielders, backup catchers, and they're each remembered here. From 1969 to last year, all Royals careers have been preserved with the most comprehensive collection of facts, memories, and stories in existence. Welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. And hello again. Welcome to yet another edition of Clubhouse Conversation. My name is Dave O, and I'm glad you are along on the place where we catch up with all your favorite current and former Royals players each week, year-round. Subscribe to us on iTunes, by the way. Got to emphasize that. You will never miss a chat that we do, a dish that we do during the season. Clubhouse Conversation, you can subscribe on iTunes for free. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Royals Clubhouse. It's Clubhouse Conversation on Facebook, and of course, right here on the website at clubhouseconversation.com. Now, I am very excited today to bring you Daryl Smith, who pitched for the Royals during the 1990 season. A guy that I've known for a better part of a decade off and on. Enjoy his correspondence always. Daryl Smith, a man, first of all, that you are going to truly admire when you hear about the things he's doing in 2015 to help out kids, uh, to help out those in need. He's given back in a big way to the game of baseball in addition to that, but most importantly to me is the work he's done in general with the community of Baltimore where he lives. So it's a guy you're going to admire a lot, Daryl Smith, and a guy who had a heck of a baseball career. We'll hear tons of baseball stories. Uh, Daryl got in two games for the Royals back in 1990, including one start, uh, was in the system with the Royals uh, from 90 to 91 with Memphis and Omaha as well. A six-round selection way back when in 1980 with the Rangers. 6'4", right-hander, could get it up there in a hurry. 96, 97 miles an hour. And he joins us now on Clubhouse Conversation from his home in Baltimore. Daryl Smith, good to talk to you again. You know, Thanks for taking the time. And second of all, how's everything going with you? Everything's well. How's everything with you? It's good, man. Just enjoying a nice mild winter so far here in Kansas City. And you're a you're a busy man in 2015. So let's start with the Dreams Do Exist Foundation. So you started that in Baltimore where you were born and raised. Kind of tell the people of Kansas City and around the world exactly what the Dreams Do Exist Foundation is. Well, uh, Dreams Do Exist Foundation is uh, was founded because um, I had a dream and, uh, and a vision that was instilled to me by my parents, my mom and uh, my uncles and everybody else that was very influential in my life. And they told me, never be afraid to dream because dreams could always become reality. And I basically just took that into perspective and uh, did what people told me to do. So I had a lot of mentors and in my life and people helped me you know, along the way. So they paved the way for me. And I'm trying to pave the way for others by giving back. And that's what I do. I give back to the Dreams Do Exist Foundation. We support six Little League baseball teams, muscular dystrophy, and the Boys and Girls Club of Metropolitan Baltimore. That's awesome. You're helping the kids. I love that. And and you've written several books, too. So I purchased and read the first one called Dreams Do Exist, which I highly recommend, by the way. And then, uh, you know, it has your entire life in baseball on that one. I guess let's talk about that book to start with. You can get it at dreamsdoexist.com, by the way. But tell us more about that book and what's in there. 
Yes, uh, that book was accepted by Baltimore County Public Library. Um, Greetings and Readings in Hunt Valley, Maryland, which uh, $5 from each book is donated back to the Humane Society. Um, uh, Mr. Stephen Spun, he's the owner of Greetings and Readings. He's a very uh, influential guy in my life. He's uh, someone that I would want to grow up to be. Um, but, you know, the whole thing about the book was when I left home in 1980, my mother promised, made me made her, make her a promise that I would write about my life endeavors. So I picked up the pen and paper and I started writing from 1980 until today. I mean, I still write and I write about everything that transpires in my life. It's funny, you know, Luis Encarnacion and I have been talking almost every other day <laughs> and since we've reconnected, all because of you, Dave, and, and I, I thank you for it. And he said, I remember you writing. I remember you writing. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, you knew him from, what, back in the Cleveland days, even before the Royals, right? We played in Waterbury together. Yeah, yeah. Talented yeah. soul he was. Yeah, he's, he's, he's a good one. And also, so not just that book, by the way, dreamsdoexist.com is the website. Not just that book, though. You've written some uh, some children's books. Talk about that. Well, in 2013, a vision came to me. Um, I had remarried, and um, I was uh, trying to figure out what else I could do that would be, you know, great to help out others. And I just thought about my life, things that I've gone through, things that I've done. Because, you know, we all have a story, and um, every story is different, but it's what you do with the story that you possess. And uh, I basically started writing about, you know, things that happened through my childhood, things that happened while growing up, things that I remembered. And uh, I started writing about growing up with my grandparents and sneaking out in the yard to play, sneaking out in the alley to play stickball and uh, getting back in the house. And they knew I was out playing baseball, but they didn't know that I was getting better, and I was getting better. Every time I would go out, I would just go out and play ball. And then in school, I, I looked up to people who were influential to me, like the crossing guard, the principal, the teacher, the basketball coach, the baseball coach. Some of these guys were and gals were so positive and effective in my life. And then it was family. You know, my dad died of leukemia and Agent Orange when I was 11 years old. And um, my two uncles, my mother's brothers, they basically took me under the wing and showed me, showed me the path. And uh, you know, those are the two guys that I would like to grow up to be. But don't get me wrong; they will put you over their knee if it had to be. So <laughs> they they would help you, but if you try to get over on them, they would they would make you you know pay for your mistakes. They would just say, "Look, uh, I'm the adult here. You're the child. And you're here to learn, and I'm here to teach." Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And I, I got to give you a shout, too, by the way, and uh, some thanks. You know, my sister went through some bullying growing up and stuff, and there's a there's an anti-bullying color book. So, you know, I wanted to thank you for, for that and, and, and tell you that. I thought that was kind of neat, too. Yeah, yeah, the color books are cool. And, you know, also, I, I tried not to, you know, pat myself on my own back. I never have. Um, you know, to be a humanitarian, someone else has to pat you on your back. You can't do it yourself. So what I've done is the stories that I've written on bullying, mentoring, and um, who you grow up to be, you know, um, I've actually selected 
from Carver School of Arts in Towson, Maryland, two young men to do my illustration. And the most influential one was Darren Guest. He uh, was 18 at the time. He weighed 50 pounds, has muscular dystrophy, a breathing tube, and a pacemaker. And he can draw anything better than what you put in his face. Hmm. So he's inspired me because this kid takes a breathing tube out of his mouth and makes me laugh. He's a comedian. I told him he missed his calling. He shouldn't be an artist. He should be a comedian. But he uh, he can draw anything. And uh, his website is phenomenal. I like to share it. It's Darren Guest Studios dot com and uh the kid is something special you read a story a tear come in your eye he's been covered by cnn nationally and uh i grew up playing baseball with his father kevin guess who's a baltimore county police officer of 27 years can't to, can't wait to retire in the next three years but he he said that i got all of my practice on him at the little league because i used to hit him all the time he became a cop, and I became a pro baseball player. It's funny. The talent is there, and then the other kid is Evan Dotson. I played softball with his dad. You know, funny, I got into softball after baseball, and I couldn't even hit the ball out the infield. And the next thing you know, I ended up being this home run hitter and going to the world at Disney and pitching as well. You know, still had a, had a good arm playing third and outfield. But um, I stopped playing. Uh, I just turned 55 in July, and I stopped playing softball at the age of 53. I just, you know, want to spend time with my family. It's more important now. Yeah, get get the you know competitive juices flowing again, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like I said, softball is forever. You know, I, I watch segments on TV. I see guys out there playing 77 years old, 90 years old. I can't do that to myself. I'm, <laughs> I've already reached my um, dream and. I'll, I'll leave it at that, and what I want to do from this point on is to be a mentor, uh, give back. You know, the worst thing I could ever hear from a pro athlete in my life was when Charles Barkley said, I am not your child's mentor. Mm-hmm. And I think he meant it, but I don't. I, I mean it that I can be a child's mentor, and I will be. I spoke to a um, Coppin Academy yesterday morning that was uh, about – 150 kids, 11th graders and 12th graders, they received me very well. And we talked about not only bullying, but we talked about cyberbullying because it's such a crucial, crucial area in uh, teenagers' lives when um, they need to know right, wrong, and different. You know, don't, don't get persuaded or tricked into, you know, um, things that's going to harm you down the line. So. Yeah, well, not only are you doing all that and giving back to the community and, and helping out the kids and all that and, and speaking, and but you're also, what, now top 50 in the nation with Lexus auto sales? Is that true, too? Yeah, yeah. I was always told if you're going to do it, do it right. And uh, <laughs> I've been uh, top salesman for the last 17, 18 years at Lynn Stoll Lexus in Owings Mills, Maryland. Uh, it's pretty fun. Uh, I, every third customer that walks in that door pretty much is my customer, so... That's awesome. That's awesome. And then one other question about uh, what you're doing. Are you st- are you still doing some coaching at Baltimore City uh, CC? Weren't you doing that for a while too? I did. Uh, I stayed there for uh, one year. They ran out of money. Uh, Baltimore City Community College. Their record was uh, I think they were like three and nineteen, and I turned them around to 
11 and something. Uh, me and uh, uh, throw a name at you, Stoney Briggs. He played 14 years in the minor leagues and never made it to the major leagues. And he was my assistant coach. But, man, I look at his stats and he should have got there too. <laughs> yeah. But uh, this community college baseball is uh, inner city youth and uh, you can't. You know, the money is for the inner city youth, not somebody from Jersey, not somebody from Connecticut, not somebody from California. You have to spend the money within the community. And it was tough, man. I, I had some kids coming out of some some neighborhoods where you never even thought of baseball even touched the ground. And uh, they were pretty talented, but, you know, they always lacked a little bit of talent in one area or another, but, you know, what I possessed and, Tone, and Stoney possessed, we actually, um, you know, we got these kids on the ball, but one thing you can't do is, you know, you can't think for them, you can't play for them, and you can't be, you know, you can't be a part of their reactions. Like, uh, you couldn't tell these guys not to fight. I mean, they not fight other teams. I mean, fight amongst themselves and stuff like that. I was like, you guys are embarrassing me here. You know, I came here to help you, not to hurt you. You know, you're fighting over, you know, a nickel and a dime. I mean, let's 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 think about baseball here. This is America's greatest pastime. Let's get it together. Some of the guys I still talk to and uh, some of the guys, I guess they just don't care. But I stay in touch with several kids because, I do free baseball clinics. Uh, next year will be my fourth year. Free baseball clinics at the uh, Jewish Community Center here in Owings Mills. They allow me to use their complex. And we do free baseball clinics from kids age 5 through 18. Wow. You, you're, how do you sleep, man? <laughs> like, you know, you're doing a lot of well, stuff. <laughs> yeah, trust right. me, I sleep well. <laughs> Well, uh, smooth jazz. I guess you can hear it in the background. I'm a music tour, <laughs> yeah. and uh, I literally go to sleep. You know, when when I was in Kansas City, Bo Jackson and uh, Danny Totterball, um with the Yankees at the time, Danny Totterball and Bo Jackson. When I went to Kansas City, I was sitting. My locker was next to Bo Jackson's, and uh, we had this uh, mood room. And uh, before I would pitch or even go out on the field, you could go in the room and put on some headphones. And they had this big 72-inch screen on the wall. And you could listen to sounds like, like birds chirping and the ocean smashing up against the rocks. And we call it the move room, so it would get you straight. And Jeff Montgomery, uh, he, I guess he won, say, 40-something games by going in that room every day before he pitched. <laughs> Really, I've never and, heard about uh, that. It was it was a lot of fun, man. I, I love that room, so I create my own room, uh, and it's just you know I love jazz. I'm a, I'm I'm contemporary jazz. I love it. Did you ever make the Jazz Museum when you were in Kansas City? Absolutely. Really, and the Negro Leagues Museum. I guess are connected too. So. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I just love music, so. You know, um, every time I went to the mall, we, we used to buy CDs. CDs were really, really hot. They still are to a certain extent, but they'll be gone soon. But, you know, CDs, are, I used to go to the mall all the time. And, and I remember um, Jeff Montgomery, he used to say, which CD do you want? Because we used to walk the mall together. And he said, which CD do you want? And I was like, I'll take any one you're going to buy me. And he ended up buying me a couple of CDs. But 
I love music. Willie Wilson loved music. I hung out with him a lot. He took me in when I came up to Kansas City as well. And uh, uh, he's like, you don't have to stay at the hotel. Come on over, you know, meet my wife and stay at the house. So I stayed there for about a week, but then I ended up going back to the hotel because, you know, I felt like I was, a, you know, a burden or inconvenience because, you know, walking around this whole family, you know, but he wanted to make sure he showed me, you know, some hospitality. That's awesome. And speaking of the Royals, I mean, I'm assuming you probably watched the 2015 World Series and even last year. Were you pretty stoked seeing the Royals win it all this year? Oh, I was pumped. But, you know, um, I was rooting for the Royals the whole time. But, you know, Buck Showalter here in Baltimore when the Royals were here, you know, Buck Showalter was my manager when I played with the Yankees Farm Club in 92 and 95. Oh, I didn't know that. So that was probably tough on you last year when they played him in the ALCS, right? No, it wasn't tough. I was calling for the Royals because that was the team that I played for in the major leagues. Oh, I love it. I love it. That's great. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, okay, so let's go way back then. So we'll come back to the Royals here in a bit. But you went to Northern High in Baltimore. You graduated in 1979. Uh, so was baseball your best sport growing up? And then who do you kind of credit most? Who were your baseball mentors when you were a kid growing up? Uh, I love to watch um, Bob Gibson. Uh, I love to watch Hank Aaron. Uh, I love to watch Tom Seaver and uh, Nolan Ryan. Those were like a lot of my favorites uh, when I was growing up. And I, I got a chance to play with a lot of greats alongside. I mean, I played with Strawberry Gooden. Uh, I pitched against Gooden where he struck out 19 and I, I lost one to nothing. Uh actually beat him in Lynchburg one time. Uh, Dale Strawberry, um, Tim Raines, uh, Ron Darling, uh, Cal Ripken. I won Maryland Star the Future behind Cal Ripken Jr., and Billy Ripken won it behind me. Some other great recipients of the Maryland Star the Future Award, it was held by Tops in Sports, like Moose Haas, Harold Baines, stuff like that, uh, people like that. Um, also, um, just... Fergie Jenkins was, you know, unbelievable. Uh, I, I love watching him. And uh, and then uh, I never learned how to throw a knuckleball, but I got to play against and hang around uh, Tim Wakefield. But, you know, Phil Necro was always one of my favorites. And then a lot of, you know, coaches that I played for, like George Culver, I learned great stories that he was not only born on my birthday and had the same birthday as me, but he threw a no-hitter on my birthday, which is July 29th. So I got to meet and learn and know Mel, uh, Cookie, Cookie Rojas, Rico Petroselli, Sal Rindy was uh, always a good coach. I played, you know, and hung around some great people. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of motivation. Yeah, so so thinking back then, so from Northern High, you went and played baseball Essex Community College there in Baltimore. So I know you've always, you know, probably dreamt of being a big league player, obviously growing up. But I mean, at what age did you actually see it in front of you, where you're like, man, I could actually do this? I mean, did you have any clue you were being looked at by the Rangers? It took you in the sixth round of 1980. Did you, at what point did you know that it might happen? Well, actually, uh, I was 13 playing 16, 19. I had a curveball out of this world. I lost it when I became a minor league pro, but um, I used to play against uh, some of the major teams here in Baltimore, Johnny's and uh, Leone's and uh, the Elite Giants. Uh, I 
pitched back-to-back no-hitters, uh, one against uh, Johnny's and then the Naval Academy. I pitched a no-hitter in seven innings. We played two seven-inning games. I uh, pitched a no-hitter against the Naval Academy. And um, then uh, I, I, knew I, I knew I had skills because uh, I was drafted out of high school by the Bureau, the Pittsburgh Pirates. And uh, it wasn't in June. It was, I guess it was... Uh, the, Oh, January, February, January yeah. February draft, I guess. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, then, and they came back and got me in June. So they offered me $5,000 to sign. And my mother ter- tore up the contract and told me, get ready to go to school. And she took on a third job and sent me off with a moped to Essex Community College. <laughs> I played a season of Juco basketball went all Metro with that. I was a pretty good ball player. And then um, baseball season came around, and then they offered me more money, and uh, that's when my mother said, pack your bags, you're leaving. So I ended up signing with, you know, the Texas Rangers in 1980, and I went to Plant City, Florida, and uh, pretty much from 1980 to 96, I was, you know, in a uniform. Yeah, well, you began your minor league career. So Asheville, uh, North Carolina, a beautiful part of the country, 1980-1981. You tied for the Sally League lead. You had 16 wins in 1981. You were sixth in ERA at 3.66. You know, Asheville, old historical ballpark. I know Babe Ruth played there. What was it like playing in Asheville? Asheville, the only thing I hated about Asheville was the short right field porch. (laughs) But I played there with some great people like Pete O'Brien, Curtis Wilkerson, Dwayne Henry, uh, gosh, like uh, who, a lot of guys um, were just real powerful there. And but I stayed there uh, my second year. I did win sixteen and went sixteen and five. And then um, the first time I went up to Double A after I left there, I ended up with tendonitis in my elbow. I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And then I got sent back down to A-ball. So uh, the good and the, of the joy of it was that they stuck with me because they saw a great potential in me, and uh, they didn't give up on me. A lot of times you see um, organizations give up on people, you know, number one draft picks. I've seen some guys, you know, get $150,000 come in, and they couldn't hit the side of a barn, and, and they hang around for three years until the you know, the organization gets frustrated with them and, and releases them. And then, you know, it's like not really happy trails, but they, they, they're trying to make it with someone else. Yeah. Well, you mentioned one guy I wanted to ask you about who played for the Royals later. Talk a bit about uh, Curtis Wilkerson. What was he like back in the day? Uh, we called him Silky Wilkie. Anything hit his way, he was definitely going to pick it up we, <laughs> and, and, and definitely throw somebody out. I mean, he was one of the smoothest. He walked. Like his toes hurt, but I'm gonna tell you what: when that ball got hit, he was like a like a cannon going to get it. And he didn't have the greatest arm in the world, but he could get to the ball and make the play. And and it was outstanding, um, just an outstanding fielder. Him and um, you know the other guys I played with: Stu Cole and and Tommy Dunbar and. Uh, Pete O'Brien and Dave Smith. A lot of guys were. We had a talented team there. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned Tommy uh, Tommy Dunbar too, who I wanted to ask you about. Obviously, we lost him uh, way too young. I think he passed away last year. What, what kind of a man was he? 
Tommy Dunbar, um, he was funny. Um, uh, he had that Lou Brock. He used to pump his back arm like Lou Brock because I think he imitated Lou Brock as a kid growing up. <laughs> and uh, he led the he led uh, he led the double A and he led double A in uh, doubles. One year he had like sixty six doubles. I mean, dude was like opening up cans on the wall. He he could find a gap with with ease. And just a good guy. Um, I introduced him to his uh, his his now widow wife. Her name is Tawanda. We were out one night, and I introduced him to her, and uh, they've been together ever since. And you know, um, I really wish I had a number that I could reach out to her. But um, I think the only person that might be able to help me is either Curtis or uh, Dwayne Henry, because we all still talk. So. Yeah, Dwayne Henry. Well, he was a pitcher, right, for the Rangers and big leagues, right-hander? Cincinnati as well. Yeah, I remember him. All right, all right. So you mentioned 82 to 85, Burlington, Salem, Tulsa. Then in April of 85, Texas releases you. You sign with Cleveland. So, I mean, what was that like? That had to have been kind of kind of bittersweet being released by the team that drafted you, but kind of sweet that somebody else wanted you. Is that how it was? I mean, it was it was good. I mean, um, they had pawned me off once before. They sent me over to the Padres. And Salem, remember that was a co that was a co op team. Oh, okay. So they sent me to Salem. I went over there and I played with like Cecil Esty and a few other guys. And <laughs> next thing you know, um, I I started throwing uh, like seven miles an hour faster. So I got up to ninety five, ninety six, and then uh, they took me back. They took me back, and then um, uh, I forgot what happened. I ended up getting released. Because I guess they were like, you know, you've been in the mind, you've been in A ball uh, like three and a half years, and WA like one and a half years. We got to move on. So um, I was like, well, I'm not gonna let you, you know, in my dream. You're not gonna let you just, you know, cancel my dreams. And uh, I ended up uh, getting picked up by Cleveland. They they called me and said they wanted me to come and throw. I end up throwing. And uh, they was like, wow, you know, somebody, somebody doesn't see what I, what we see. So next thing you know, uh, I ended up. Um, I think it kind of built me a little bit. It built my, built my strength and my character. That, you know, being in a uniform was more important than not being in one. I was always told that if you have, as long as you have a uniform on, you have a chance. And and I concur that that is the truth because if you're not in uniform, nobody's looking at you. So I ended up um, pitching my heart out, and I played with uh, John Fell, who is the manager of Boston. Uh, Andy Allison, he kept telling uh, uh, Rico Petroselli, Rico, Rico Petroselli, this boy can pitch. This boy can pitch. He's he's smart. He hits the target. He knows. You know. He remembers batters. He remembers to mix it up. And uh, Rico was like, okay, well, I'm going to try to get it. So Rico Petroselli came to me and he said, uh, um, "Is it?" he said, I don't see why you're not in the major leagues right now. He said, uh, don't say anything to anybody, but I'm going to make a couple phone calls and you should be out of here by this weekend. So he made a, fuck, he made a couple of phone calls and, um, and I'm waiting like, okay, you know, he's getting ready to get me out of here. I'm getting ready to get my meal ticket. And then next thing you know, he never said another word to me, pretty much like, I told you I was going to say something to somebody to try to get you out of here, 
and uh, never just never got back to me. So I, I had a lot of broken promises while I hit most organizations, from the Phillies to the White Sox, where they came into town. I threw three days in a row, ninety of relief, ninety six, ninety seven, down at Metropolitan Stadium, and they were supposed to take me up to the Windy City, and uh, they were going to replace me with Bobby Thigpen. Hmm. And uh, something ha- I don't know what happened. They just it just never happened. Everything that was promised never happened. So, but I never gave up on it. You know, well, that's for damn sure. You kept plugging along. So eighty five to eighty seven, Double A Waterbury with Cleveland, where you met Encarnacion. We talked about him earlier. Williamsport before Philadelphia had picked you up. I wanted to ask you about a, a couple guys you played with in Cleveland that also played here in KC. What can you tell me? Do you remember Jermon uh, Baranca? Don't remember him too well. Just uh, uh, just the name, because we used to tease him by his name already, Baranca. We used to tease him, but um, don't remember him too well. There was also uh, uh, Cliff Pasternicki. Remember him? Yes, yes. Uh, wasn't as long as Louie and uh, Russ Mormon and Gary Thurman and a lot of these guys. We kept moving around. It was, you know, Double um, A down in Memphis was fun and. Triple A, you know, I fell asleep leaving Memphis to go to Triple A. I fell asleep on my way up. They were looking for me. I fell asleep, woke up in a cow pasture somewhere. What? <laughs> Is that really? They, they were looking for me, and I was on somebody's farm in my old Ford F-150. I, I fell asleep trying to get to uh, Omaha, and 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 I, when I woke up, I was in somebody's cow pasture with a bunch of uh, <laughs> bunch of cows looking at me. <laughs> That sounds just like a country music song, doesn't it? Yeah, Oklahoma. I'll never forget it. I was like, What's, where's Oklahoma? And, you know, Rosenblatt Stadium, they had the zoo right behind it. I was like, great. See cows coming up and animals while I'm here. That's just great. <laughs> That's fantastic. You also played with Trey Hillman, who would manage the Royals later on. Do you remember him at all? Yes, yes, yes. Very decent person. Uh, and, um, you know, a lot of people help each other you know along the way and one thing we i didn't run into was a lot of selfishness you know because some guys hung with each other some guys didn't you know you have groupies and you have groupie baseball guys that hang with people uh some about the guys from california and they never got along with the guys from the east coast too much so it was uh you know a little bit of this and a little bit of that uh rodney mccray uh i played with him and yeah, he, he played with some other, you know, guys like in Triple A. It was just, it was like a storage round. You know, you had Paul Zuvello, yeah. Brad Reese, Bobby Meacham, Russ Mormon, Gary Thurman, yes, uh, Luis De Los Santos, mm-hmm. Brent Maine. I mean, you talking about all major league talent? Yeah, you played. Rodney McRae is the guy that ran through the fence, right? That made the catch and ran through the fence. Yeah, over in Canada, he ran through. The, he made the catch and ran through the uh, fence. He held on to the ball too. Yeah, that was boss. I love that. So middle oh of my eight, gosh, yes. yeah. So middle of '87, Cleveland lets you go. You finished out the year at AAA with Philadelphia. I know you weren't there for a real long time, but you played for Maine, the guide. So they are, first of all, I've never been to Maine. Is that a you know real pretty state? And second of all, what was that experience like? That you know they don't have a team there anymore. But what was that like? Oh, I went. I was on my way home, and I stopped off in Reading, and that's where George Carver was. And I went in, and him and Rich, Rich Doobie, 
And I went in and I told them I was on my way home. I got released, and they was like, "Well, come on out, show me what you got." I went out. I threw ten pitches, and uh, George Cova said, "We need them." So they signed me. I think I went six and one with a two three two ERA, and then they shipped me up to uh, up to Old Orchard Beach, Maine, AAA. And I went up to Maine, and I was up there with Steve Jelks and uh, uh, God, who else was up there? Uh, Thad Reese might have been there too. He yeah. was somebody special. Um, um, so I went there, and they the baseball stadium was next to uh, a fire station. And every time the sirens go off, the mosquitoes, O M G, would just <laughs> They they might have as well been killer bees. They would just bite everybody in the stadium. So the mosquitoes were nasty. They were the biggest mosquitoes I've ever seen in my life. And you couldn't play a game and not go home without a mosquito bite on you because every time a sign went off, which was every day, the mosquitoes would just fly away and just start biting people. Like They, they like ate off at dinner. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes! Well, well. Uh, so after that year, then you mentioned the White Sox earlier. You spent one full year with them, Double A Birmingham in '88. Right, Birmingham was nice. Metropolis, Metropolitan Stadium was awesome. Um, I pitched very, very well there. And uh, like I said, that's when the White Sox was getting ready to take me up. But they had this guy named Thigpen closing up at the big leagues, and uh, another roadblock. I mean, you know, good talent was, you know. During that era, it was a lot of good pitches, quality pitches, a lot of good pitches. Yeah. In 89, you came to spring training with the Sox, and then you pulled a muscle in your right forearm during spring training. So you missed basically that entire 1989 year. I mean, where were you? Were you rehabbing with the team that year? Did you walk away? What was 89 like? Yeah, I rehabbed in Sarasota. I actually, uh, actually um, had a rehab in Sarasota, and uh, it was tough. I, I didn't, you know, I had, uh, I, I never believed that I would have surgery because I've always said if I had to have surgery, I would end my career because I never wanted to have surgery. So um, I ended up um, just rehabbing and, you know, going back and forth trying to get my strength back together. And then, you know, I, I made it through it. It wasn't that, it, it was tough, but, you know, it was a lot of ups and downs and, you know, I would throw, you know, two weeks pain-free, and then I'll pull it again. And uh, it was pretty tough. So sometimes you you got to deal with it, you know, and just try to overcome it. But, you know, the most frustrating part about it is that, you know, you want to pitch and you can't. Yeah. Well, this is where it gets really interesting for me. So you eventually signed with the Royals. It's March 22nd of 1990. But correct, the media guide I have here says that, quote, Daryl was installing security surveillance systems for a store at that time. Is, is that true? They found you from a store place? How did that happen? Actually, yes, I was. It was uh, Montgomery Wards. We called it Monkey Wards. <laughs> and I was a CCTV specialist, so I would actually uh, – installed cameras up in the ceiling just to catch shoplifters. And uh, we caught a lot of housewives. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, it was amazing. They would come in with a stroller. You know, the least person you would expect to do anything like that, you know, they were off all day. The husbands were at work, and they come in with their baby in a stroller, and the baby would be like two feet off the ground. 
and then when they leave, the babies be like five feet off the ground because all the stuff that they were taking would be under the baby stroller. <laughs> so how? So it was tough to run out and show this little five-star fake badge that says security <laughs> and uh, tell a tell a judge's wife that you know I'm taking you back to the office and calling Baltimore County police officer because you just stole. Five hundred dollars worth of children clothes. <laughs> so how how in the world did the Royals find you from there? How did you end up back with the Royals in that merch? Joe Klein. Joe Klein uh, was from Baltimore, and uh, he knew where I was. I don't knew. I don't know. I didn't catch him shoplifting. That's for sure. But <laughs> he uh, may have. Uh, we we ran into each other. I, I remember we ran into each other at the golf shop. And I, I never played golf a day in my life. I hate, I hated golf. You notice I said hated, but now I'm a, I'm a seven or six handicap, so I'm pretty good at it. But I shot 97 the first time I played golf, and that was after nine holes. And I, I walked away. They said, "Where you going? You got nine more holes to go." And I was like, "Nah." I said, "I'm done." They was like, "No, you got to play the back nine." I said, "What's the back nine?" They said, "The other side." I was like, oh, man, you're killing me. I don't want to learn this game no more. <laughs> so I walked away from it, and then I hate to be defeated. So I ended up taking lessons, and now I shoot 74, 75. So. Very nice. Who, who was that Klein guy? Did he work for the Royals then? Joe Klein, yeah, vice president of baseball operations. Huh, I don't remember that name. I should know that. Oh, yeah, if you find that name, you'll find that he's been around for many, many years. Uh, with the Texas Rangers, uh, then he would follow me over to the Cleveland Indians, and he followed me over to the Royals or somebody else. But he's been a part of my baseball career for almost uh, nine or ten years. I remember uh, as the baseball uh, vice president of baseball operations. Do you, do you remember the other Joe Klein, the redhead basketball player for the Celtics? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Not him. Trust me. <laughs> Not to be confused with him. Okay. Uh, Not to be. So 1990, great year for you. Three stops then. So Memphis, before we, you know, we talked about the cow pasture earlier, but while you were in Memphis, uh, 21 games, all in relief, an ERA around three. What do you remember about pitching for the Chicks? Uh, um, wonderful, wonderful. I called it a band box, but... I threw a lot of ground balls there. I, I think I threw the most ground balls in my life. Then, and from Asheville, I used to get ground balls all the time. I threw 19 ground balls a game in Asheville. Nobody got the ball in the air. But in Memphis, you definitely didn't want to get the ball in the air because I saw some of the places Bo Jackson hit the ball when it got up in the air, and you didn't want that. Trust me. Um, nice town. I was down there. We used to go down on Beale Street. And that's where Penny Hardaway, we was down there one day, and Penny Hardaway um, said something smart to somebody, and somebody started shooting, and we all took off running, and Penny Hardaway got shot in the foot. Ooh. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, that's right. I don't know if you remember that, but he got shot in the foot. He was in college. Yeah. Cause... And uh, he ended up making the uh, NBA, but he got shot in the foot. And you know, all he said was something smart to somebody like, like, nice girlfriend or something and then the dudes just started wilding out it was crazy we just took off running because all we saw was oh he's got a gun and i'll tell you what I, I i live in baltimore and it's worse now than it ever has been and i just don't put myself out there like that i i go to work and take care of my family and do what i gotta do and uh waiting for louis to come visit me he's gonna come spend a weekend with us one time i told him i could cook and he started laughing 
<laughs> he's not buying it, huh? <laughs> no, nah, he's not buying it until he tried one of my crab cakes. He'll be all right. <laughs> well, uh, he eat anything, so he might as well try. It. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so you mentioned it. So you, f- you fell asleep in the cow pasture. You get called up to Omaha. So I mean, Omaha. Let's talk about that. So you start uh, ten of eleven games. You you pitched in there were as a starter in nineteen ninety. You were six and two there. Uh, struck out nearly a hitter every inning, and, and the Royals eventually called you up. But before we talk about that, you were the winning pitcher in the Triple A Alliance Championship game over Rochester. You struck out eleven hitters in just seven. Innings. Innings. You, do you remember that game at all? I remember that game as if it was yesterday. And the Orioles, you know, the Orioles. Uh, I wanted to, I wanted to show them that they made a bad mistake by not selecting me. And I think uh, Tony Chance was one of their top hitters. I gave him the hat trick. And uh, I was, uh, I, I pitched well. They had a guy in the stands. He knew my split finger was working that night, and every time I was about to throw it with two strikes, he'd yell out, see ya, because he knew they was going down. <laughs> and uh, we won. We won that game, and um, we were 25 games in first place in our division that year. So we didn't think we were going to go over and lose against Rochester. We went over there, and we, we beat up on them pretty bad. But, uh, yeah, yeah, they um, – I pitched that game, and I think that was the end of the season, right there. Yep. And um, I think I was six and what was that? Six and one. Uh, six and two. Yep. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking positive. Six and one, six and two, <laughs> same <laughs> we'll, thing. We'll go with six and one. <laughs> uh, I, I think I had a, a low ERA, and um, I kept saying, "When are they going to call me up?" Because at one time I was like six and zero, oh, uh, six six and zero oh with a one two three ERA. And I was like, when are they going to call me up? When are they going to call me up? And Cal, uh, Sal Rindy kept saying, be patient, be patient. And um, the season ended. I went back to my apartment. I packed my car up. I was out of there in a half an hour. I drove all the way home to Baltimore. And when I got in the bed with my pregnant wife, Joe Klein called me and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm home with my wife. And he said, what are you doing home? Uh, you, you, you're, a, you're a major leaguer. And I started crying. i tell you now, and I started crying, holding on to my, my wife's pregnant stomach. Oh, that's a great story. So you you just driven through the night and drove all the way back to Baltimore, huh? Straight home. No cow passes. I didn't <laughs> run into none. I went straight home. I wanted to get home. <laughs> well, you walked into a big league clubhouse then September 17th of that year when you got activated. So what's that like when you first walk into a big league clubhouse there for the first time in Minnesota? Oh, my. Um, walked in. Uh, first person I saw was Frank White and Willie Wilson. It was unbelievable. And uh, then batting practice was getting ready to start. And uh I met almost everybody. Batting practice was about to start. I ran into, uh, saw Ken Herbeck and Kirby Puckett swinging, you know, batting practice. I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, I'm here. I'm here. I feel like I was walking on a cloud. I mean, my feet never touched the ground. It was unbelievable. And then who were some of the guys, you know, that you kind of hit it off with right away that kind of took you under their wing for KC right when you walked in there? Bo Jackson, um, uh, who else was it? Steve Farr, 
Oh, yeah. Um, Jeff Montgomery, Bill Pakoda. Uh, who else was there? Mm, Bob Boone. I was like, God, you're a big dude. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Boone was huge. He actually caught me. And George Brett came over and gave me a pound. George Brett played first base for me. Uh, when I pitched, he ended up moving from third over to first base. Oh, yeah. John Mayberry. That was fun. Uh, Buck O'Neill actually was there. I got a chance to meet Buck O'Neill. That that what a nice guy, right? Nicest guy ever. Man, he was just a class act, unbelievable, and full of stories too. So big league debut. Then next night, then September eighteenth of ninety, you came in and relief of Carlos Maldonado. So there's runners at first and third, one out. You get Kent Herbeck in your first big league at bat, and then you get Gary Gaetti to hit a little soft liner to second to get out of that inning. So you know what do you remember most about that first game? Well, I tell you what, I was warming up in the bullpen because I was getting ready to go back to Kansas City and pitch against the Bash Brothers, Oakland, Jose uh, Canseco and Mark McGuire. So I was practicing, warming up, practicing, because I was going to be the scheduled starter for that game back home in Kansas City. So I'm excited. I'm down there throwing a going hard and popping the glove and and then next thing you know uh, Carlos got in a jam and then next thing you know somebody ran down to the bullpen and said Co- coach want to know if you can you can get these last two outs and I was like for real? <laughs> and yeah coach want to know if you can get these last two outs I said hey look I'm loose I'm ready let's do it so they took Carlos out and uh, put me in I went in first batter I just missed facing Kirby Puckett, because I think Kirby had did something. He got Carlos. So I came in, first pitch I threw, Ken Herbeck hit it about 450 feet foul. <laughs> I, my eyes lit up like a Christmas tree. I looked in the dugout. Frank White was in the dugout, and he said, put his hand down low, said, get it down. You better get it down. <laughs> Next thing you know, and this is a true story. I'll never forget this. Next pitch, he swung and fouled. I went away. He swung and fouled it off. So I had him 0-2. Next pitch, right down the middle of the plate. And the umpire just looked at me. And I put my glove up. Like, where was that? The umpire called time. Ran out to the mound. Said, son, don't you ever do that to me again. I said, what do you mean? The pitch was right there. He said, if you think you're going to get that pitch, you're sadly mistaken. Welcome to the big leagues. <laughs> it's right down the middle, though, right? <laughs> yep. Next thing you know, threw another pitch. He flew out to Bo Jackson. <laughs> Next batter up, Gary Gaetti. One pitch, jammed him, flew out to my second baseman. I'm out of the inning. I ran off that mound so quick you thought somebody was chasing me. <laughs> That's a great story. Then, so you get another appearance. Then, so I, I guess your start. So your start got moved. Then to get moved because of that appearance, or why did they scratch that one against Oakland after that? Then it did. It did because I came in in relief. It got because I was actually going to be the start pitcher two days later in Kansas City against Oakland. Weird. And then um, they said we don't want to take anything away from you, so we're going to let you uh, start against uh, Cleveland. 
Yeah. And, and it ended up being the last game of the season. I mean, I kept dying to get in the game. I wanted to get in as a reliever any way I could. I just wanted to pitch. So I they penciled me, and I start I start against uh, um, Cleveland. So you got Kenny Lofton, Candy Maldonado, and I can say it before you can say it. I gave Candy Maldonado was leading the major leagues in home runs and RBIs, <laughs> and I struck him out three times that game. Yes, you did. He was he was your first big league strikeout. I was going to ask you that. And the second and third, I got him three times. <laughs> I didn't know about the I didn't know about the home run. I wouldn't have ratted you out there, but you brought it up, so I guess you called yourself out on that one. <laughs> I, I actually struck him out. I gave him a hat trick. He struck out two times against me. I didn't know that. Okay. And uh, Kenny Lofton stole two bases on me, but the only time he scored was when Andy McGaffigan, I think, or Steve Crawford, one of them came in while I had man on first and second and gave up a triple. Yikes. Well, yeah. You... So, I remember leaving two men on the base with one out or something, and Andy McGaffigan or Steve Crawford, one of them came in to relieve me and gave up a first-pitch triple off the wall. <laughs> well, it was, a, it was a good outing, too. I mean, even with that, though. I mean, six innings. Yeah, you... yeah, it was a good outing. And, you know, what was crazy was, Dave, is um, my plane, I, I ended up flying home that day sitting at the Orioles game. So I went home and went to the Orioles game that same day. I'm sitting at the Orioles stadium looking at the scoreboard. It says Cleveland, Kansas City, 4-3, losing pitcher Dale Smith. I'm sitting in the, I'm sitting in the, um, in the, in the seats looking up at the scoreboard saying my name and that I lost that game. Oh my god, that's that's how weird is that? So you're sitting in well, how far away is that? That's like halfway across the country and the same day. Oh, no, no, Cleveland back to Baltimore wasn't that bad. Oh, I, I thought home I, oh. that day and I went to the game that evening. Oh, okay. I was thinking of you guys were in Kansas City that day, so you were in Cleveland. Yeah, no, we were in Cleveland. It was a short flight. Okay. And uh, I'm sitting there, and it was a scout sitting there. I can't remember his name, and it was a scout there watching the game. And I said something. I said something to him. I said, "How you doing?" He said, "Good." I said, "I said, I said, that's me right there." He said, "What do you mean?" I said, "I lost that game right there." He said, "What?" I said, "That's me." Here go my card. I'm Daryl Smith. He looked at me and he said, "Holy, you know what? Holy sugary." <laughs> what? A, I wonder if that's ever happened before. Like you know, an afternoon game and a few hours later, a different probably city, not, big league game. Not. That's how much I love baseball. I made it home and I went to the game. I watched. I went and watched Cal and them play. It was, you know, I made it home. Yeah. And um, you know, but I, you know, I, I didn't give up. I, I went anywhere I could. I played in Taiwan, Italy, Mexico, Venezuela, Dominica. I went everywhere. Everywhere I could go. So, do you have? A, a, is there a video in existence of either game or not? Oh yeah, yeah. They still have uh, footage of Minnesota. They still have footage of. Uh, the um the Cleveland game that I started. No, do you have them? I think I do. I just haven't looked at it in a while, but um, it's in archives. I'm sure that they could still pull it up because it was a televised game, both of them. Man, that would be great. I want to see that someday. I, I remember seeing you in, in Omaha, but wow, that would be cool to see that. Um, oh, my gosh, it was um, unbelievable. Candy Maldonado was just frustrated when I struck him out three times. He was like, <laughs> and I know what I did. I, fastball, I used to, fastball, I struck him out on uh, 
two split fingers, and then the last time I said he's looking for the splitter, just give him the heat, and he took an outside fastball for strike three looking. <laughs> well, uh, while you were in KC that September, then, did you ever see Bo Jackson do anything You know, uh, jaw-dropping where you're like, oh, my God, what's the most amazing thing you saw Bo do? <laughs> well, first I tried to – we were goofing around one time, and uh, I tried to run from him. And I didn't get out of the infield before he caught me. So that proves how fast he was. And batting practice was crazy. I watched him hit two balls out with one hand. The guy threw the ball. He never put the right hand on the bat, and he hit the ball next to the waterfall. Jeez. Twice. Gosh. I, the guy, it, it, it's like you wouldn't even believe this stuff if you didn't see it, right? I mean, the stuff he does. No. I got, I got one for you. So Bo Jackson had a um, Nike shoe contract. His locker was next to mine. His locker was twice as big as mine. I had one little skinny locker. He had a double locker. And he had shoes piled up to the top. And I had, you know, I only had like one one or two pair of shoes. And I said to Bo, I said, you, you're not going to wear all those shoes. Can I get a pair? And we wear the same size. And Bo said, no, absolutely not. <laughs> and I said, well... You don't pay for them. Why don't you just give me a pair? You know, I just came up from the minor leagues. I don't have nothing. And Bo was like, no, you can't have nothing. So Bo went out on the field. So I went into his locker, and I took a pair of the shoes, and I put the box at the bottom. And I took the pair the shoes, and I put them on. They're brand-new Nikes. <laughs> now, Bo marked all of his shoes, all of them. They weren't worn or what. He never really wore shoes more than two, three times because that's why he had so many. So I go in and put on a pair of black and white, uh, blue and white Nikes with the metal cleats. And I put them on, and I'm like, he never know they're gone. And I wore them out on the, um, throwing batting practice. Bo noticed that it was a B on one shoe and an O on the other one. <laughs> <laughs> what did he do? And, um, he walked up behind me while I was shagging, you know, I'm behind second base and I'm shagging balls. And Bo walks up behind me and said, Take my shoes off. <laughs> I said, What? He said, Take my shoes off. I know they my shoes. <laughs> and I said, How you know they your shoes? And he said, uh, there's a B on the left shoe and there's an O on the right shoe. <laughs> I said, How did you see that? He said, Don't worry about how I saw it. He said, I actually didn't see it. Somebody told me. He said, but take the shoe off. So I took the shoes off. I said, now you got me out here with no shoes on. <laughs> he said, take my shoes back in the locker room, put them, on a, put, them in, put them back where you got them from. So I took them back in, put them back where I got them, put on my old ugly shoes, came back out. Bo had finished hitting. He left and went in the locker room. When I came back in the locker room, he had the shoes back in my locker. Oh, that's cool. But he just made sure that he knew that I had them, and he made me take them off. But then he put them in my locker, and he scratched off the B and the O, and he put D and S below it. <laughs> that's cool. Do you still have them? Yes. It says, my last pro shoe. I still have it in my basement. That's cool. What a, what a cool story. But the dude's going to kill me. <laughs> well, he probably could have if he wanted to, right? <laughs> he was built like like his locker. I mean, dude was 
Chisholm. He's 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 unbelievable, but very good guy. And I remember he had a Corvette. He had a Corvette that he used to park in the um down in the tunnel. He had a Corvette that he drove. <laughs> he says to me one day, "Do you believe in reincarnation?" And I said, "Yes, I guess so." Do you? He says, "Yes," and then. I said, well, if you are reincarnated, what would you come back as? He said that he would want to come back as a stealth fighter jet. And I said, why? He said, because it's big, it's strong, and it's fast. (laughs) What a cool guy. He was such a cool guy. And I'm going to tell you what, I, I mean, him, Willie Wilson, Frank White, those guys, man, John Mayberry, they made you feel like a million bucks. And Mr. Watson wasn't a bad guy either. And George is pretty cool to you too? Yes, yes, yes. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, you came back to big league spring training then, so 1991 uh, with the Royals. Before we talk about that year, though, Baseball City, Florida, what do you remember about that? Um, Just a clean atmosphere, a uh, fun place to play. Um, I just enjoyed it. It was clean and fun, and everybody was nice. Everybody was nice. Uh, probably one of the most class act organizations that I've ever played for. Good. And then, uh, so spring training, uh, the Royals sent you to Omaha then. Uh, but did you feel like you had a pretty good chance of making that Kansas City opening day roster or being back up there at some point? I, I actually thought that I was going to make it. Um, you know, a lot of injuries the year before, if you recall. A lot of injuries the year before. And um, I just thought that, you know, I had uh, had a moment to shine there and, uh, you know, that I would get another chance. But uh, it didn't really happen. So, Well, you had a, a really good year at Omaha that year, too. Uh, started 14 games, nine in relief. Uh, you know, Rosenblatt Stadium in Omaha, how'd you like it? How'd you like that? And did you ever go to the zoo over there? Yes, um, actually, uh, the stadium was was awesome. Um, you could really move the ball around and get guys to hit the ball where you wanted them to hit it. Because, you know, when we played against the Cubs, you know, Derek Lee and some of those guys they had over there, they had some pretty good guys that ended up making it to the major leagues and doing pretty swell for themselves. But um, we are... Uh, you know, we 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 pretty much own that stadium. I mean, we had some real good hitters, and we had some guys that could go get the ball. I mean, we had uh, Jacob Brumfield, um, we had uh, Gary Thurman, and Harvey Pullum. Um, we had some real good guys that basically, you know, if the ball was hit, but when Bobby Meacham and 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 uh, Bill Pakoda, Thad Reese. I mean, the ball didn't. You know, the ball didn't get through. I mean, look, Brent Maine. You know, look at the catches we had. I mean, these guys were really, really good. Uh, there was another catcher, Tim Spear. Yes, he had some catches. We had the best catches, the best fielders. Um, Russ Mormon and De La Santos playing first base. We had some real, 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 real talent there. I mean, we were like a major league team. Stored in Triple A, and 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 we proved it by our, our you know winning records, and uh, the the state um, not the stadium but the zoo was uh, it was a pretty nice zoo. I'm used to you know um, 
visiting uh, zoos with uh, family members and, you know, the little ones because, you know, they don't really get a chance to see other stuff like that, walks of life for animals unless they're looking at National Geographic or something like that. But um, it, it, it was fun. I went over there a couple of times. Uh, I would come in a little early um, instead of going straight to the field and go over there and check it out. It was directly in right field just over the fence. So yeah. and it wasn't far away Bob, at all. You could walk there. Bobby Moore was on the guy that could go and get it too, right? It was on those teams, I think, too. Um, yeah, Bobby came up. He he came up and helped out. Um, very very talented. I thought um, you know he was he was real small, but it, he he didn't hit for power. But you know he definitely put the um, put the wood on the ball. He definitely did that. And then some of the pitchers: Bob Buchanan, Maldonado, Hector Wagner, Jay Baller, Jim Campbell. Remember those guys? Oh yeah, all all talented pitchers. I think we all fed off of each other. Um, a lot of a lot of good pitches are well. One of the pitches now, let's see, is it Dave Allen? I remember Dave yeah. Allen. He wasn't on our Royals team, but I played with him in the Yankees organization, and he's now uh, the pitching coach for the Kansas City Royals. Yep. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he. You know that he was uh, Kevin Costner's body double in For Love of the Game, that movie. And as well as I was uh, Dennis Haysbert's double in uh, Major League Two. What, you were? Yeah. What? How did I not know that? Really? That's funny. I'm going to send a, I got your number. I think I have your number or I'll post it on Facebook for you. Um, I have two clips from it. But um, I was also a character and uh, my name was Dalton. And I threw all of the pictures for Charlie Sheen and I... For Dennis Haysburg, I did the diving catches as a stuntman, and I hit the balls into the stadium. I hit the balls out of the park with a fungo, uh, helping Steve Yeager, who was uh, in charge of uh, that part. Man, you got to get that in your bio. That's like, that's uh, that's cool, man. That's I didn't know that. Yeah, I have it on I have it on uh, on video. Um, uh, that it's funny that when I was in the movie. Um, they left my name off the credits, but they paid me. They gave me a big old check because they left my name off the credits. Oh, I don't know. So was that filmed in spring training with when you were with Cleveland, or when did that get filmed? Where was that at? I was here in Baltimore uh, with the Bay Sox in 92, and after the season was over with, I played for Don Buford in A here, and I think I was 3-1 and one with a 1-2-3 ERA, and they released me because I was – I was back home, so we tried to win the, you know, this, win this little league down here. I came back there, except the Orioles signed a uh, local. So I ended up playing with the Orioles Farm Club after all in 92. And then I went from that to, to Yankee spring training with the Yankees in 90, 92 or 93. And uh, I went from there to Mexico. Uh, I was in uh, A with Doug Jeter and Mariano Rivera. Oh, wow. And uh, I couldn't buy a win. I, I, I had a, what was it, a three two three ERA. And um, it might have been one two three ERA in A Columbus. And I was 3-2, and two, and I was making $20,000 a month. And they hired a, a six foot four rookie 
and was paying them $2,000 a month. So they pretty much downsized me. They sent me out of there. I went to Mexico and played in Monclover. I played for the Mexico Diablos, the Reds, and Monclover. I got traded in Mexico. Imagine that. <laughs> traded in Mexico. And uh, I just wanted to play. So I went over to Monclover. And then uh, after that, I, 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 I retired in 92. I went to Charles Hickey School here in Baltimore working with juvenile delinquents. And uh, after that, I ended up uh, 93-94. I'm in juvenile detention center working at Charles Hickey School here in Baltimore, Maryland. In 95, uh, uh, I guess Joe Klein was with the tech, with Joe Klein was with the New York Yankees. And Joe Klein and Brian Cashman called me to come back when a strike was going on. And I said, I'm not being no replacement player. And they was like, well, we're going to sign you to a AAA contract so you won't be a replacement player. So I went back. I talked to Steve Howe, Danny Tartaball, a couple other guys. And I told them, they said, look, don't, you know, don't cross the line. I said, you ain't got to worry about me crossing the line. I've already made it to the major leagues. Why would I cross the line? They started bringing in all of these truck drivers and all this stuff, and I was <laughs> watching these guys play, and I was like, holy cow. So they wouldn't let me on the field because I was on the AAA contract. Oh, okay. What, what? Yeah, and they wouldn't let me on the field. And then when the strike was over, they was like, all right, see you later. And I went to Mexico again. And I played in 95, and then I went to Taiwan, from Mexico to Taiwan. I went from AAA spring training, which never did anything, went to Taiwan, Mexico, and then over to Taiwan in, in 95. And in 96, I was going to go back to Taiwan, but my mother ended up passing away. Uh, getting very sick. She died in 97, and uh, I didn't go back. So I played 96 in Taiwan, 95 in Taiwan, 96 in Taiwan. 97, I went back to Taiwan. My mother got sick. I came back home, and then she passed away, and I retired in 97. What a career, though, man. What, what are you most proud of when you look back at your entire career in professional baseball? Um, not giving up on my on my hopes and my dreams and my aspirations. Not not letting someone tell me that I can't be or I'm not gonna be. When I heard more people tell me that we're gonna we're gonna get you out of here, you, we're gonna get you to the major leagues, we're gonna get you out of here. I'm gonna talk to somebody. You don't belong here. You throw the ball too well, and um, not getting hurt, but a couple of times and. You know, balancing myself and fighting and not giving up and just just dreams to exist. I mean, who would think that I would end up writing a 26-year educational autobiography about my life and naming the book Dreams to Exist because at first I was going to name it From Dreams to Reality, but that website was gone. And then I ended up naming the book Dreams Do Exist. And then 26 years later, the website Dreams Do Exist was available. Hmm. I, I, I say that it's all because of my mom. And just before I signed on a dotted line about 
dreamsdoexist.com, some guy had contacted me and offered me $50,000 to give him the rights to dreamsdoexist.com. And I said, I'm sorry, I wrote a book about it. I can't let you have it. Wow. That's that's cool, too. Didn't want it, didn't need it, and still don't need it. I mean, I'm doing quite well for myself. I have a wonderful wife. Um, she's been working at Johns Hopkins for 30 years, um, the Wilma Eye Institution, um, epidemiology, and now she works in uh, plastic surgery with hand and uh, face specialists. They've reattached you know, things to the body, you know, fixed faces. And, wow. You know, my daughter's uh, 24 now. She's got two degrees. Uh, she graduated from UNS and Jacksonville and then FAU. She got a master's in psychology. And then I married into uh, my wife had a two-year-old and I had a five-year-old. So my son Sterling, who actually was a creeper, changed his name to Smith because I raised him since he was two. He's a senior at Stevenson University here, graduating in um, management and in, uh, in, in the management field. Um, and then I have an eleven-year-old son who's a sixth grader and smart as a whip. So it's basically hers, mine, and ours, and uh, you know. It's, it's it's wonderful. My daughter just got married in April and uh, in June, six thirteen. Her husband's six foot eight, and he runs uh, the Boys and Girls Club of Metropolitan Fort Lauderdale, and he works for UPS. And she's uh, she's a happy camper, and she's a Broward County deputy sheriff. So I say to her, I said, Taylor, I said, when are you gonna get that gun off your hip? She said, don't worry, Dad, it'll be soon. I'll be there, boss, soon. So I trust her, and I think she will. Because, you know, I worry about her every day out there, this crazy world. I worry about my daughter, you know, out there. Cops come on TV, and it says Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I'm looking for my daughter. Yeah, <clears throat> that is tough. I was going to ask you, too. I have four more rails questions, but I just thought of one thing. How tough was yeah. it? How tough was it? You know, they had the the, the, the the Orioles game when it was close to the public this year. There was all the unfortunate violence. What was that like for you to go through that and see that? What, you know, what were you thinking during that whole thing? Well, it was pretty tough because, you know, I, I grew up in a, in a city, um, Eastside, and uh, it wasn't tough like it is now, you know, Back then, we had grandparents, we had morals, ethics, uh, we had people that cared about us. Now it's, you know, the parents and the kids, you know, doing negative things together. Um, I, I don't know, they're not of the baby boomer era like I am. You had to be born in 60 and above to, 60 and below to be called a baby boomer, and I was born in 60, so um, it was really tough uh, you know, you know, we had a lot of good things here in Baltimore from the Ravens winning the Super Bowl and people act crazy climbing over the the walls and stuff during that time. But um, with all the violence, in lieu of all the violence that's going on, the Freddie Gray case and, um, you know, uh, so much going on with, you know, African-American. It's, it's not just African-American kids, but it's Caucasian kids, too that um, are being, uh, you know, manipulated, you know, by uh, police and, you know, racial profiling. You know, you know, it could be no different than an African-American police officer 
racial profiling uh, Caucasian guy. But, you know, if you put yourself in that situation, if you, you know, walking down the street late at night with a backpack on and, you know, you're just asking to be pulled over or, or somebody to question you or you're driving tags that are expired and, you know, you know the technology that the police officers have now today, you could drive by them and a uh, sign going to go off in their car. If your sticker say 416 and it's 516, that it's a month expired, the tag, you know, they're going to track you down. You know, it's just it's technology. And if you don't stay ahead of technology, you know, you're, you're going to get caught. I, I talked to my sons. My sons will never be the ones hanging out in the street late at night because, you know, it starts with the parents. It starts at home. And my my grandparents would never let me hang out in the street after 7 or 8 o'clock at night. But I see kids sometimes when I'm warm away from home from work. I see 14, 13, 15-year-old kids riding bicycles out 10 o'clock at night. You know, you're just asking for trouble. So, yeah, clear yourself of all of that rhetoric. Yeah, well, hopefully things continue to get better and we keep, you know, making strides as a society. So, yeah, I mean, I, I hope so, too. You know, I, nobody wants to see anybody get hurt. Nobody wants to see anybody die. And, um, you know, we're going through it here. You know, it was a third of the African-American population here in Baltimore that acted out at that time when um, the riots was going on. You know, I, I know too many, too many wholesome and church-going people that they would never get involved in anything like that. I mean, the people who got involved in stuff like that are people who have nothing, will never have anything, and they won't be able to pay back the fines that has been laid against them. You know, how are you going to pay back $500,000 in restitution when you make, you know, $25,000 a year? It's just a joke. It'll never happen. So... Those people uh, had an opportunity to say, you know, hey, I'm not going to ever get anything. Um, I'm not going to ever be anything, so let me just take what I could take for now. You know, I, I go to a lot of schools and talk to these kids, and some of the stories I hear is these kids don't believe they're going to live past 21, 23, 24 years old. Jeez. It's sad. It's real sad. Jeez. Yeah, that's, wow. It'd be, a, it'd be a tough, tough world to face, I guess, you know? I mean, it's not just Baltimore. I mean, it's tough in Chicago. It's tough in New York. It's tough in Shreveport, Louisiana. It's, it's, it's tough everywhere. You have, you know, you have the hood everywhere you go. You know, it's going to be there. And, um, you know, hey, people in Beverly Hills could think that, that, that my neighborhood is the hood. I mean, it, it is what it is. I tell people it's different strokes for different folks. You know, in the car business, we always say there's a there's an ass for every seat, and I and I mean it because some people um, can afford thirty thousand dollar cars, and some people can afford sixty thousand dollar cars, and some people can only afford fifteen thousand dollar cars. You know, the fifteen thousand dollar car is going to break down before the sixty thousand dollar cars. It's just the way it goes, and you know, I tell people, you know, stop buying five and ten thousand dollar cars and try to buy yourself a twenty thousand dollar car. It'll last longer. Yeah. Or just buy a Lexus. 
<laughs> from Daryl Smith, right? <laughs> That's right. Uh, last three questions for you. A random question before we ask the last three. Why does your best baseball reference page say Dare Smith, D-A-R? Did you go by that ever, or do they just change that on their own? No, I think I think uh, they were trying to some type of abbreviation that, that failed because I saw it myself, and I, I was like, wow. I, my wife saw it, too. I was like, I, I have no clue, and <laughs> we, we did notice that. I noticed that a few years ago, and I was like, okay, yeah. I was wondering about that. I noticed that. I'm like, why? Because I never remember you going by that, so I was kind of confused by that. So It says DAR. That's what I think. It says DAR, D-A-R. <laughs> I'm like, wow, is that supposed to be like an abbreviation of some sort? Uh, maybe there's a second Daryl Smith. I don't think there has been. Has there an MLB? Maybe there has been. I don't know. Nothing um, I haven't seen another um, Daryl Smith. Not spelled the same way, for definitely. That's kind of a rare... Spelling. No, my name was not the one to be chanted. I think uh, Strawberry with two R's, they could say Dell a little longer than they could say mine. <laughs> That's right. Well, uh, last three questions for you. You know, you're, you spent two years in the in the Royals organization. You know, when you sit here right now, what do you think about? I mean, I'm sure it's mostly good memories. What do you think about when I say two years with the Royals? When I say two years with the Royals, I, I think grateful. I think uh, hospitable. And uh, I think uh, class act. I mean, when uh, you know you you think about someone who believed in you enough that they could you know pull you to the top of the world. And uh, you know, I have a major league alumni championship ring that came from the you know it's, it's not a championship ring. It's just a major league alumni ring. That says my age, my number, and my name on it, and you know, knowing that it came from the Kansas City Royals, it's just uh, a good feeling. And you know, I, I have my jersey. Um, I end up, I don't know how much it was, but I have a jersey with my name on it, and I have it framed and hanging in my basement, and it's going to be passed on to my children. And, you know, there's a legacy that, you know, Daddy got a cup of coffee. So I know that, you know, there's only today been 17,900-something people to ever play in the major league since their existence, and I'm just proud to be one of them. Yeah. Have you been back to KC ever since then? Um, I went to Kansas City. Uh, I went to a Chiefs game. With a colleague of mine who uh, uh, does some work in Kansas City, he he does some um, interior decorating, and he was like, um, "You want to go to a game in Kansas City?" And I was like, "Yeah." I said, "Let's go." And I said, "Is it going to be baseball or football?" He said, "I don't know yet." And then when he called me, it was a Chiefs game. I forgot who they played, and it was uh, last year actually. And um, I just said, wow, look at the stadium. Because, you know, it reminds you of Baltimore. We have, you know, M&T Stadium, uh, M&T Bank Stadium, and then we have Camden Yards, Catacorner, each other. And that's what it reminds me of. Yeah, did you, did you get to go inside uh, Kauffman Stadium at all or not? No, I never went back inside the stadium. But I did get a chance to go inside the, uh, the football stadium. So that's cool. That's cool. Um, well, and then last thing I guess is, what would you like to say to uh, to Royals fans listening right now? Uh, congratulations on a well deserved World Series, and uh, they they I thought they were going to get it last year, but um, uh, they're a great team, and they're young and strong, and the 
pitching is probably some of the best in the major leagues, and you guys should be knocking on the door again next year. Remember, you're the reigning champs. They got to chase you down. You don't have to chase them down. Heck yeah, I'm all about that. Well, I got to tell you, man, on a personal note, it's been a true pleasure talking to you and hearing the stories, and I admire, you know, the man that you are and and the love that you're spreading to people and helping out the people. You know, that's what it's all about, obviously. And obviously, I have great memories of watching you uh, in Omaha and and remember you and and KC, and I'm thrilled you played with us, and hopefully we can stay in touch, and hopefully I'll see you uh, you out here one of these days, maybe next time for a baseball game. Well, you're not shy on Facebook, so I'm sure I'm going to hear from you, and I'll keep up the good work and and answer every question that you could ask me. Dude, I got plenty of it. There's plenty more where that came from, so we'll be in touch. You can call me anytime. I'll be more than happy to do it again too, Dave. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you again uh, for your time, and I'll be in touch soon. All right, absolutely. Thank you.